0: The song's um brought up first Corinthians chapter thirteen, excuse me, Colossians chapter one, verse thirteen, forgive me. It says, For he the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. There's a lot there. Uh, but Good morning. Thank you for being here today. Today is our the beginning of our 54th missions conference here at Calvary Bible Church. Two years into our church plant here, some 56 years ago, we started this tradition every year where we highlight missions as we support them all around the world. I'm going to introduce to you here in just a few moments our missionary guests that we have here today. What I would like to read this morning is Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Verse 18. So then as through one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the one who was obedient, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray together. Spirit of God, be our teacher today. Change us by your word through the power of your spirit to glorify the Father. Lord, we thank you that we can celebrate missions today and also together what you've done for us on the cross, that my sin is paid in full. And if I believe in you as my Savior and Master and Lord, that I can spend eternal life with you. And Lord, uh, what a special reminder that it is just to have communion together of what you've done for us And be with the rest of today, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today is our 54th Missions Conference, and since our inception as a church, we have believed in supporting missions work all over the world. To kind of give you an idea, uh, we do missions a little bit different here than a lot of churches at large. I'm not here to disparage what other people do. Typically, what some denominations, they have an annual fundraiser. That they have and the money kind of goes into a black box and we don't really understand kind of where it goes and who gets supported. But we do things differently around here. 20 cents on every dollar that you give to Calvary Bible Church goes directly towards supporting missionaries and missions all around the world. And we have a relationship with our missionaries that we support. We support 46 different missionaries or different mission organizations as a whole. That's in 16 countries on five continents. So the missions that you, we support really do go all over the world here at Calvary Bible Church. And today, we have 11 of the 46 that we support to kind of share with us. So we have an evening service Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and we'll hear from different missionaries about their ministries all around the globe. But here this morning, I would like to introduce to you those who are here at this particular service today, and if you would, so I'm going to ask you to kind of save your applause for at the end of all these introductions, okay? And then, um, and if the missionary, assume, when I call your name, if you're the missionary, please stand, okay? So first we have Tim and Lois Strauss. They serve with Kolo Group. They serve out of California, but they have also served in Turkey and in Kazakhstan, correct? There you go. I got that one right. So then we have Dan and Lucia Brubaker. They serve in Mali, Africa with Wycliffe. And then we have Brock and Heather Howard with Avant, and they serve in Mexico. And then we have Jeff and Ann Ingram. They serve with team and they in the country of Germany. And then we have Mark and Josie Morgan. They serve with Iwana here in North Alabama. And we have Catherine Burleson. She serves as CEF of North Alabama. She is in the back. And then we have a representative from the Downtown Rescue Mission, Anthony Cooper, who we support as an organization. I'm not sure if he's here this morning. Okay, I guess exit is stage left. Okay, and then we have uh, Laura Galden with Kids for Christ. I think she's helping in children's ministry. And she—oh, never mind. There she is. Hi. Hi, I know you. Okay, she serves right here in North Alabama. Would you just please give me give them a round of applause for our dinner guests? And our keynote speaker today is Tim Strauss. He is the son of our founding pastor here at Calvary Bible Church, Richard Strauss. Tim Strauss and his wife Lois served 30 years in overseas missions with Mission Aviation Fellowship. Tim has filled a variety of roles with Mission Aviation Fellowship, including the Eurasia Regional Director role, overseeing all the MAF's work in several countries throughout the 1040 window. In 2020, Tim took the executive role, Executive Director role for Colo Group, a small mission advancing technology and missions so that the least reach can be transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. Tim holds a master's degree in organizational leadership and is currently working on his doctorate in intercultural studies. Uh, Doctorates in theology and stuff like that are really tough, so give him some grace. Okay, with Fuller Seminary, Tim and Lois have four grown children. If you would please welcome Tim Strauss to the stand this morning.
1: Thanks, Byron. And as you can imagine, it's a real pleasure for me to be with you guys today. Um, Our connection to Calvary goes way back, as you can see. Uh, When my dad was the founding pastor of the church, I was two years old at the time. So, and are there any founding members that happen to be here today? If you can, you raise your hand if there are. There we go. Oh, very good. So there's still there's still a few left. Maybe there's a couple online as well that are watching. And I just want to say uh, thank you. Um, there's obviously a lot of connection. The other thing that's very strong in connection is when Lois and I were on our first furlough. In uh, 1993, my dad came to Arkansas to uh, have one of his treatments for the cancer that he had at the time. We happened to be at Calvary the weekend that there were some complications, and the St. Liz, who were uh, longtime members of the church, uh, actually also family members, lent us their car, and we drove to Arkansas, and that's when my dad passed away, so... Um, we came back and then were able to share a little bit with Calvary. I choked up then, as I would probably choke up now, um, just talking about that time. Uh, but very, very special time. Calvary holds a very dear place in our hearts. Uh, the places that we have served, I served with Mission Aviation Fellowship, as Byron said, for um, 30 years. And the first six years were in Lesotho, Africa, as a pilot mechanic. Then we transitioned through Albania, filling in it for a person going on furlough there for a little over a year, just in time for the country to completely blow apart and go into total anarchy, probably due to our arrival. We're not sure about that. But uh, 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 we had a chance to serve there, some very interesting experiences. After that, we transitioned to Kazakhstan, where we served for 16 years, followed by Turkey for four years. Uh, then we went through that uh, time where I recognized that the Lord was calling me to hand over the role that I had been doing, which was a very exciting role that I enjoyed. I oversaw all of our work through Central Asia and, and Asia. So there were a large number of countries in many of the most restricted access. We had works in some very restricted access countries, and some of which I'll tell you about uh, during this week. Um, so it's, it's good to be here today. Um, we certainly miss living overseas, but we do recognize that God has us in this role right now. And it's been exciting for me to begin to apply these 30 years of using technology and missions through aviation and other means um, to COLO Group now where we're applying that as well. And there's a number of different projects. You can see some of that over on our table and some of the things that we're doing there doing there. So let me open us up in a word of prayer. Father, I do just want to commit this time to you. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you will fill me, that you will speak through me, and Lord, that you will move in all of our lives to draw us closer to you. So Father, we love you, we desire to serve you, and we desire, Lord, you to take our lives and use them for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I was growing up, If someone was referred to as a goat in a sporting event, it typically meant that they were the person who messed something up really bad. They were the one that had done the wrong play or ran the wrong direction or something and the entire team lost because of the one person that was the goat. So, when we came back in two thousand and nineteen from the field, um, it was fairly normal for us to have to kind of catch up to cultural things. but all of a sudden, we began to hear people like Tom Brady or Michael Jordan being referred to as the goat and that didn 't quite fit my expectation of that term in my understanding and so I began to began to question it, and I threw some deductive reasoning, and I'll admit maybe a Google search or two, uh, I was able to come up that GOAT now stood for the greatest of all time. So those those were the people that were considered the greatest of all time. And I just, okay, now that's great. And for some reason, we as humans love to classify what is the greatest, who is the greatest. And we like to be first ourselves, or at the very least, associated with first. You know, we want to choose a team that's going to be in first place, that, that is our team that we root for, or something, or something along those lines. One of my favorite examples of this is how countries rate how they're doing in the Olympics. And if you've noticed this, when, when they, news shows in the U.S. what the Olympic standings are, sometimes they'll show you the most number of gold medals, Sometimes they'll show you the most total number of medals as being on top, and usually it's the one that the U.S. is a little bit higher on. And we've seen this overseas as well, where they kind of change it a little bit, and sometimes it might even be the most number of medals compared to the size of the contingent that they sent to the the, uh, Olympic Games or something like this. Well, the Jews in Jesus' day also seem to have the same interest in hierarchy, but hierarchy of the commandments. Of course, good Jews needed to obey all 613 commandments of Moses. But there's some pretty good evidence that which one was the most important was of considerable interest in the rabbinic discussions that were going on during that day. During this conference, we're going to look at several key themes and missions that apply to each of us as we follow Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at what are the key priorities and today, we're going to look at when Jesus said what the greatest commandments were in Scripture. And to do that, though, we need to understand, first of all, the context of what this happens. And to do this, we'll look at Mark 12, verses 28 to 34, as well as Matthew account of the same thing in chapter uh, Matthew 22, 34 to 40, Mark 12, 28 to 34. And um, you got to understand that this happened during the Passion Week. So, this means Christ has entered Jerusalem, he had the triumphal entry, and during that week, he continually went to the temple, and he would teach, and he would uh, talk in the temple. And the Pharisees and Sadducees did a lot of testing of him during this time. They came up with a lot of questions, and they were trying to trap him during this time. So, that's what's going on during this setting. Um, so, let's look first at the Mark account. There's no greater commandment than these. Well said, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Okay, so now let's go over and let's look at the Matthew account. So that's Matthew 22, uh, verses uh, 34 to 40. So hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert of the law, tested him with this question. So we see a little bit different perspective here. Now we find out that the Pharisees have sent this guy and they're actually testing Jesus with this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the prophets hang. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. I love this account of where Jesus presents what are the greatest commandments. He's challenged with it and he has an answer. The thing that really stands out to me is the first point that I want to bring out is the simplicity of the commandments. Living under the new covenant, we know that clearly not all of the 613 commandments of Moses apply to us today. But we know that many of them do apply to us. Things like, have no other God before you. Before, before, before God. Does that one apply to us? Most clearly that one does. How about do not commit adultery? Well, that's another absolute that pretty much clearly applies to us. But then we start to get into some gray areas. How about keep the Sabbath? Okay, well, now there's some Christians that would be very strong that, yes, absolutely, you must keep the Sabbath. And there'd be some that say, no, that's, that's not a, a requirement to us today. At the very least, we do know that we don't keep the resulting consequences if you break the Sabbath. Does anybody know what those consequences were? You were stoned, supposed to stone them to do that. I think we'd get into a lot of trouble as churches if we started to take that stand in terms of keeping the Sabbath. And we're all pretty much unanimously acknowledging that we're not limited to wearing clothes made of one material. If before you uh, uh, feel like that's something you need to do, be sure you check the tag in your shirt or whatever you're wearing. Make sure that it's not a blend of some sort. And I think we're also pretty much convinced that we're not living in sin if you happen to have a tattoo. Uh, especially with the popularity of tattoos these days, uh, that's, that's certainly not a thing. So not all of the, the laws apply to us today. Living under the regulations of the law was just as impossible for the Israelites as it is for us. So many believers of us at one time or another in our spiritual journey have struggled, though, with trying to understand what commands of Scripture apply to us today and what commands are limited to a specific cultural context. It's such a significant topic That there's a whole science of Bible interpretation called hermeneutics. And I heard that Byron just completed a whole series on hermeneutics in the church, which is great. And I hope you were were able uh, to be a part of that, because basically any seminary student has had to take at least one class, if not several classes. In that subject of hermeneutics, how do you know what commands of Scripture apply to us today and which ones are from us, are apply in a specific cultural context, or how does that apply to us today? I personally take a lot of comfort in this account of Jesus' response because it gives me a couple of quick questions that I can ask myself when I'm faced with some very difficult choices. The first thing I can ask myself is what choice demonstrates or expresses my love for God and keeping him first? Then I can ask, what choice or response most clearly demonstrates my love for others or the other person? You see, it's really about that vertical relationship between you and God and then the horizontal relationship between you and the others around you. This is then lived out in terms of proclaiming God's love for us, as well as then demonstrating God's love to those around us. We can use these two questions to guide us. And so as we live out those two commandments, we live them out in both the demonstration and the proclamation of the gospel. But then we apply that in every in every situation. So when you're in a tough situation and you don't know how to respond, you can use these two questions to guide us and just ask yourself, in what way do I best proclaim my love for God and in what way do I demonstrate God's love for others? And I can promise you that if those are the first two questions that come to your mind the next time that you're cut off on the freeway uh, or when somebody uh, does something to you, gets angry at you for no legitimate reason, or maybe you're deprived of something that you thought you deserved, a promotion or something else in your life. The answer that you'll get back in those situations, if you ask those questions, is most likely not going to be to get angry or get revenge. Now, you might be surprised to hear that we as missionaries uh, are regularly challenged with some situations um, that are very difficult to know what the ethical thing to do is. So... I brought along a book, and I'm going to read an example of this, not because I don't have examples personally, but because it's a whole lot safer to read it out of a book than to tell you this, some of the significant ethical challenges that I've been faced with. If you, want, if you want to hear them, you can ask me, and I'll personally tell you. So this is a story from the book. Bill look at, looked at the police officer with uncertainty and frustration. The officer had asked him for 200,000 rupees for the return of his driver's license. It was Bill's twelfth weekly visit to the headquarters since the license had been confiscated. And as resentment rose, he faced the possibility of yet another week wasted, clouded with uncertainty and unpleasantness, unable to use his car. Must he sacrifice his principles in order to resolve the matter? Now, if you're sitting next to a missionary, watch and see how much they giggle at this. That's a good test to see if, if, if this is accurate to what they experience. The problem began when Bill had returned from a missionary assignment out of town. He was coming into Bandung, West Java, along the main highway from Siroban, the same road on which he had left the city two days before. The chaotic congestion was about normal in this heavily populated part of town. Animals, trishaws, and people were weaving their way in and out among the motorized traffic that crawled along the road toward the urban open market. For some time, Bill had been caught behind a slow-moving, overcrowded bus, and there was little chance of getting past it, even when it stopped to allow passengers to alight. Suddenly, Bill was jolted to attention when something hit the side of the car. Before he knew what happened, he caught sight of a policeman approaching the car and shaking his fist. By the time the officer had picked up his baton from the street, that's what he threw at the car to get his attention, Bill was out of the car and prepared for the worst. Fellow missionaries had warned him, never tangle with the police. In fact, it was missionary policy not to call the police, even in the case of a house burglary. Experience had shown that it was cheaper to sustain the losses of the robbery than to bear the frustration of red tape and loss of further property taken to headquarters to test for fingerprints. Bill did not have to wait long to find out what he had done wrong. For several hundred yards approaching the market area, the highway became a one-way street. Buses and other public vehicles were permitted to use it in both directions, but private vehicles had to detour around back streets and rejoin the highways several blocks beyond the market. Bill pleaded that he had seen no sign. It had simply followed the bus. The officer walked Bill back 20 yards and pointed out to him a small, mud-splattered sign obscured by a large parked truck. This did not seem to concern the officer at all. There was a law and a sign, and Bill was guilty. Officer Samojo escorted Bill to the local police post in the market. Five other officers materialized in the stalls in the market, so Samojo began to explain how very embarrassing it was for him to have to prosecute a foreigner and how he regretted that Bill had put him in this difficult position. After some time, Samojo suggested the whole thing could be smoothed over quietly and without further awkwardness if Bill would pay a token fine of two thousand rupias. Now that's about a dollar twenty. Bill had been expecting just such a request, and without even asking if it was a formal, legitimate fine for which a receipt would be given, Bill quickly protested that although he might be technically guilty, Indonesian law had a system of justice and courts where such matters were to be settled he would go through proper channels and request to be allowed to do so. The officer scowled and told Bill that he would have to hold his driver's license until the case was settled. Bill could come to the police headquarters the following week to get it back. Since no receipt was issued for the license, Bill secretly feared that he would never see it again. The following week, Bill went to the appointed office, only to be informed that the license had been sent to another department on the other side of the city. After a slow trip by Trisaw, Trishaw. Bill finally found his way to the other office. The policeman in charge had a record of Bill's offense and said Bill could talk to the captain, who would probably be prepared to settle the issue for 4,000 rupees. That's now $2.40. Bill suspected dishonesty and requested an official receipt for the money. The man just smiled. Bill told the policeman that he had come to Indonesia to build efficiency, justice and the high standard of morality in the country. He would prefer to go through official channels. At that, he was sold to return in a week's time. So, week followed weary week, with hours wasted in travel and more hours spent waiting in offices, each time the amount requested for settlement rose higher. And you wondered what missionaries did with their time, right? Bill worried about what he should do. He didn't want to be a troublemaker, but as a missionary, he had to take a stand for honesty. His Christian witness depended on it. His whole upbringing as the son of evangelical pastor had been one of strict integrity, and he had managed so far to maintain this standard in previous encounters with immigration officers and postal clerks. Yet while he felt he had done the right thing, he still felt uneasy, for he knew full well that government officials were so poorly paid that they had to make at least double their official salaries on the side if they were to feed and clothe their families. The whole system was unjust, and he was caught in it. Bill talked to some other missionaries. They just laughed and said, Let us know how you get on with it. <laughs> now it was the 12th week, and he still did not have his license. Moreover, the amount being asked to settle the case had risen to 200,000 rupees, now about $120. Should he pay the official and end the case, or should he appeal to a higher-level officer in hopes of a just settlement? Bill looked up the officer and said, And that's where the example ends. And he doesn't tell you what he says in the the rest of the chapter of the book. Now, we regularly have this kind of thing happen to us uh, in Kazakhstan. And I have more stories about encounters with police officers on the streets in Kazakhstan than you would even care to hear. And Lois has some as well, uh, which she avoided for the first nine years that we were there by not driving. And then she got the joy of experiencing after she started driving in the country as well. It's not only a driving either. There were some even more significant issues that we are faced with. And how do we respond? Oftentimes, this is really extortion. This is, this is times when they're just trying to get money out of you and you know they don't have the right to, but they have the power over you to cause you significant problems. Do you pay in that situation? Do you, do you pay a bribe? When is it okay and when is it not? You have to be, don't be so quick to judge what's done in a different cultural setting. One thing I want you to notice in these two commandments that Jesus gives, you'll notice that it's love God and love others. Strangely enough, he did not list a third commandment that says obey the laws of the land. That's not the third greatest commandment. And yet how often in our evangelical Christian circles do we put obeying the law above loving others and demonstrating that love to others what are the things that we can sometimes get out of order in our priorities there were many times when I was challenged by things that didn't seem right by my American upbringing and that I had to go back to these two questions and it was comforting to be able to make a decision guided by these two questions because I I felt before the Lord if I was able to say Lord what demonstrates my love for you and first of all and what demonstrates my love for others and then I made a decision I was able to be confident in that decision I've no doubt that many of you might be challenged by some life choices that you see your friends making uh, maybe your kids or your grandkids uh, and you're you don't know how to respond well use these two questions When you're wondering how to respond, ask yourself what in my response proclaims my love for God and what in my response demonstrates my love for them. That love for God and love for others needs to be the overriding factor and the overriding point that we make. And I love the simplicity of it. You don't have to go through what are all the other commandments that apply when you just initially focus on those two things. But don't let the simplicity hide the challenge of of applying these commands to our life. In the Matthew account, in verse 40, it says, All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And that demonstrates the breadth of the commands, which is the second point that I want to bring out. Loving God above all else is going to have significant impact on our lives. It seems His will and what He wants for us is far more important than any title or position or thing that we think we might deserve it means that what we have and what we want in life is really all his so it has to first be given to him and then recognize that it's His to do with as he pleases when we have this attitude and these priorities The result is proclaiming our love for God is going to naturally flow out of our life in both our words as well as our actions. Loving God and loving others has broad implications in our lives and our ministries, both in our words and our deeds. Our human nature tends to make us favor one or the other. Uh, It tends to lead us to an out-of-balance situation. When I was in Mission Aviation Fellowship leadership, we recognized how easy it was for staff to get out of balance on either side of demonstrating or proclaiming love, uh, the love of God. We had some pilots who said all that mattered was that they served the people and they did so in love and that their service alone would draw people to Christ. And there was a lot of good and a lot of truth in that. But then we had other pilots who would get upset because the majority of their pilots were just with regular passengers or they were flying rice or coal or goods into an isolated area and they weren't carrying enough Bibles and missionaries that they felt they needed to do in order to justify the support they were getting from back home. Now, both of those sides needed to understand that the words and deeds applied. Those those that saw that the, the deeds that they were doing were good, needed to also look for the opportunities that God was opening a door that they could plant seeds with their words, that they could say things. Um, those that were convinced that they needed to just be doing uh, uh, the evangelistic stuff needed to understand that the actions of providing goods and services into these places had a huge impact in terms of opening them up. And we have many stories as well from our lives and from my days flying in Lesotho when I actually saw how that opened, opened up. The minute, in evangelical missions, we tended to see this pendulum swing from one side to the other between social action and gospel presentation. There's actually a time when many of sending churches seem to only care about on reports Things like how many people had you led to the Lord? How many times have you shared the gospel? How many times have you showed the Jesus film? And nothing else seemed to really matter to some of the supporting churches. But the ministry that God has called us to is broad. It does definitely include teaching, verbalizing the gospel. But it also includes service and demonstrating love to others through acts of service. The fact that Jesus sees the importance of including loving others in this list of greatest commandments shows how closely tied demonstrating God's love is to the proclamation of Jesus' sacrifice as we carry that task of making disciples of all nations. I hope that you'll truly understand the importance and the gravity of both of those being critical to our, our gospel witness. When Afghanistan fell apart in August of 2021, a year ago, Lois and I had to put into practice a lot of this, of learning how to live out both the demonstration and the proclamation of of the gospel. Because you see, for 13 years, I had been traveling multiple times a year into Afghanistan from Kazakhstan because part of my job was overseeing our work there. And as I would travel in, I, of course, made some deep friendships with a lot of the national staff that we had. And they were Afghan staff. And when the country blew apart, I actually started to get text messages from one of them before it even hit the news, saying that the Taliban was coming in and, and he was quite scared of what was going to happen. We joined a group that began helping Afghans that were in, in danger get out of country secretly and we got them to a neighboring country and we began to take care of them in a safe house, expecting to move them on to a country within just a few weeks where they'd be able to settle for a longer term and wait. Well, we saw one country after another close its doors uh, to that, and that turned into what now has been over a year for many of these Afghans. And we continued to help provide for them. Uh, that was through a process of raising funds to provide some of the costs for them in the safe houses. And we, in particular, engaged with three separate families that were kind of the ones that were our focus. And so as we engaged with them, we had to ask that question. How do we both show love and how do we plant seeds for what God for who Christ is and, and the truth that we want them to know because they're Muslims. They're, they're, they're not Christians, the ones that were supporting. There were many Christians that we also helped in that, that got helped through that process, but these in particular that we are, we are helping were not. And we still look for that and look for the opportunities. And we have seen times where Jesus has very particularly protected, uh, some of them. And again, those are stories that I'd love to tell. It's so easy in ministry to let our lives get out of balance and to excuse that out of balance with our service or with our words. I have no doubt that it's a struggle for you, uh, just like it was for me and just like it was for us in the MAF ministry as well. But that's why we also have to see the third thing I want to draw out in this, and that's the priority of these commands. In verse 33 of the Mark account, we see the teacher of the law affirming Jesus' answer. And I love his response, because this is the guy the Pharisees sent to test Jesus and catch him. But his answer is, he says, he acknowledges uh, by saying to love God and to love your neighbor is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Remember, these are the same guys that got upset at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, for any little thing they could find that they thought that he did wrong. Here's a Pharisee saying, Truly, to love God and love others is even more important than all the details of the burnt offerings and sacrifices that we do. And then, uh, even though this was the, the words of the teacher, you can see how Jesus affirms his words when he says, it's, It says, he saw that the, scribe, that the scribe answered wisely, and Jesus says, You are not far from the kingdom, in, in verse 34. In other words, loving God and loving others takes precedence over our acts of service and, and over our worship even. And I don't want to downplay the importance of worship, the importance of gathering together by any means, because that's where we get fed. That's where we get a chance to grow in that love, that love for God. But if that neighbor or friend needs help, and it happens to fall on a Sunday or your Sabbath day of rest or possibly during a church meeting, Hopefully using these questions can help guide you and give you a framework to understand sometimes choosing to help that person might demonstrate God's love the most. When we let our acts of service sometimes take priority and get out of balance with demonstration of God's love, we can fall into this trap of excusing sinful behavior. I've got a rather embarrassing example of that in my own ministry life, and it was early on in my years in Lesotho as a pilot. We were flying and we flew for a flying doctor service as well as we did some community service flights as well as a lot of missionary and national church flying. And there was another operator on the other end of the country who did just all commercial flying. Uh, they were not Christian at all and they would they would just do move a lot of people very short distances which were very difficult because the roads just basically were non-existent. Well, the civil aviation of the country didn't like how they were doing things, and they decided to shut them down, and they came to us and asked, could we help fill in with the flying they were doing along with the national airline, and we agreed to help in that situation. You see, this other company, they would just kind of throw the people in, sometimes even without weighing, and they were flying the same kinds of airplanes that we were, uh, actually less powerful airplanes than we were, Uh, but they would throw them in, fly them over, whereas we would weigh all the baggage, weigh the people, tie the baggage down so that if there was an accident, things wouldn't fly around the cabin, and uh, then brief the passengers. It tended to take us a little bit longer. And when we started flying, we would get over there, and there'd be hundreds of people waiting, and our airplanes carried five people at a time. And so we would start doing these flights and would fly all day, and then at the end of the day, we had to get back to the other side of the country before an hour before sunset by our standards. And one particular day, I'd been there, and I'd been flying all day, and I was looking at my time, and I just figured, I can't get another turnaround in and still make it back within my hour limit. And so I I said, nope, I can't do any more. And one particular Masutu guy just started to get really upset and and yelled and screamed at us. And there was a Lesotho Airways plane sitting there as well, and they were heading back across the country also. And it just infuriated me. And so I started walking towards him, and it was almost an audible voice I heard that said, Tim, you don't need to do this. You can turn around and get back in the airplane. And I said, no, I'm
0: going to do this.
1: And I walked over there, and I started yelling at him and telling him how I was there to help, and I'd been working all day, and, and I don't remember all the things I said. And I turned around, and the Lufthansa Airways pilots were sitting there watching, and I went, and I got back in the airplane. And I cannot imagine the damage I did to the kingdom by letting that single outburst happen on that one day. Willingly opening that door to anger in that instance gave Satan a foothold of anger in my life. And I found that I struggled with anger more and more over the next year. And it wasn't until I recognized and repented of how wrong it was that I lost my temper in that instance that I actually began to get victory over that that anger that had been in me. When we let that kind of stuff happen, we do more damage to the kingdom than, than the good that we think our acts of service are doing. All that flying I did that day lost in terms of the kingdom impact because of that one instance. And there were still 200 people probably waiting there to get in. Well, in conclusion, without a doubt, we all confess that Jesus is the greatest of all. He gives us the privilege of playing on his team. And fortunately, his playbook is not complicated. Its simplicity covers the breadth of our lives. And when we prioritize loving God and loving others, all the law and the prophets are summarized right there. We don't have to worry about are we obeying every command. Love God and love others. So the next time you're faced with a difficult decision or hurt by the actions of others, let those two commands come to mind and guide your choices. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. We just bow before you and thank you. Your yoke is easy. The burden is light. You promise that, Lord, and that's the case. And it doesn't mean it's easy to live a life of loving you and loving others. But it does mean that the simplicity is there, Lord. That we can, we can put you first. And we can put others first and seek to serve. And Lord, let you work through that. Lord, help us all to know when and how to verbalize the truth of your word. And at the same time, how to demonstrate through acts of service to those around us in a way that that truly demonstrates the love that you have for them. And Father, I just pray that you'll help us to apply this to our lives. And Lord, I pray that there's, there's any that are listening to this that have not committed their lives to you not recognize lord jesus the hope that you give that they would give their lives to you and trust you for the forgiveness of their sins so father we just uh, pray that you'll glorify yourself in this time and this week in the missions conference in jesus name amen just before we do the final song i want to give you a brief outlook at what we're going to talk about each of these nights um, uh, as we move forward so tonight, we're going to look at, do you have what other people want? What does it mean uh, to live a life that truly attracts people to Christ? What does it mean that we're salt and light? On Monday night, we're going to look at what does it mean, how do we shape the gospel message for the people that we're communicating with? And what are some of the challenges that we face both in missions and that you might face here? What does it mean and how do you do that appropriately versus what is inappropriate in that process? On Tuesday night, we're going to look at the story of Zacchaeus where the focus of this whole missions conference is where where uh, the, the theme is taken from and we're going to look at how do we then apply the truths that we've learned how do we apply and intentionally step out and build those relationships and have those discussions with people and then Wednesday night, we're going to look at God's call on our lives and what does it mean? What is God's call for us personally and how do we obey that call and what does that mean? So that's a little bit of a preview of what we're looking at for each of the, each of the nights as we move ahead for the next four nights. So thanks.